Good afternoon. I'm Brent Holland. Welcome to the show. There's a lot to cover this afternoon, so we're going to jump right to it. This afternoon, Dave Toyson, president of World Vision. We discuss Haiti and how you can help. I just had a moment to stop and take in the scene. And this, this is what it looked like. I was looking first at a man being treated by our volunteers. Then off to the left, a man walked up with a 12 or 13-year-old child who was hideously malnourished. My eye turned a little further. There was a casket being carried up the street with a stream of mourners behind them. Then I looked further off to the side and there was the body of a young woman who had died. It appeared to me had been lying on the ground for hours. There was no place to take her body. And then the last thing I saw, I was walking out. I looked to the side of a couple. The wife was laying on the door and the man had put up, he was obviously an artist, a beautiful painting of Haiti with sunlight across it. It was gorgeous. All these images, and that's what we were dealing with right from the beginning in Haiti. There's a lot to cover this afternoon, so we're going to jump right to it. This afternoon, we discuss Haiti and how you can help. Right now, on Brent Holland. Okay, we're off and running. <laughs> Folks, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dave Toyson. We're talking about a serious matter today, and that is the crisis in Haiti. Dave Toyson, of course, is the president of World Vision Canada, and we've got a lot to cover today, so we're going to jump right to it. Dave, everybody by now is aware of the crisis. It's a good month into it, if not a little bit more. It has gone off the radar screen, though, somewhat. It's not as sexy and in vogue as it once was. It was splashed all over CNN, and there were celebrities doing everything for it, which is great. What is needed now? Well, I, I, decide, I would divide the, the answer to the question in two parts. We still need the basics of life for some people. We still have not been able to provide food for everybody that needs it, water for everybody that needs it. We don't have adequate housing for people, especially as the hurricane season will be approaching in May and June. Mm. And there's still some medical concerns, all right? So that there's still some short-term emergency needs out there that are really critical for people. And then the second part of it is really thinking a bit further down the line. In other words, how are we going to help people get their livelihoods back? In other words, what, what can we do to uh, improve the economy in the country? Uh, what, what needs to be done to ensure that kids are back in school, that there's good educational facilities, that people have decent places to live? I mean, those are some of the longer-term challenges, and that's why, you know, for organizations like World Vision, we've been there for over 30 years, and uh, we'll probably be there for another 30 years. Who knows how long it's going to take? 
So I, I, those are the challenges that I, that I would describe. Now, all these challenges sound extremely daunting, but if you bang them down and look at them individually, we can tackle them without a doubt as a country, as a nation, and certainly as a world, we can look at each individual one. What are the major red flags and what can people do about them? Well, I, I think the first comment I'd like to make, it's a more general comment, and that is I, I, the way I describe what we're doing in Haiti is that I think most of us, if we're honest, I compare it to a mountain. And if, if you'd like to climb a mountain, what you'd like to go is just straight up the mountain. But, of course, what happens, and this has been our experience in Haiti, you actually end up more and more going around the mountain, slowly making your way up. It takes a lot longer. Sometimes it feels like you're, you're almost going downhill rather than uphill. Mm-hmm. And, and in my experience in these sorts of emergencies, that's, that's really quite typical of, of what happens. So I, I, just, I put that metaphor or that illustration for people to just keep that in mind because there's, there's been concern that things haven't been happening fast enough nor robust enough, and, and those are legitimate concerns, but I, I, I just have to, from my experience, say that these disasters are always very challenging. Understood. Uh, you, asked about re- you asked about red flags. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the, the, the need for stable food distribution is really critical. Um, we're at the, currently, we're part of a World Food Program distribution program. There's about eight of the larger agencies, and we're distributing to 1.6 million people. And we're trying to complete that over the next week and a half. And that's giving people rations of about uh, 15 days' time per family. And that's really critical so that people have confidence that they have food for a while and they're not wondering where food is going to come from the next day. So that, that's a red flag area, all right? What are the inherent problems with that, the distribution? Well, the, the, yeah, the, the problems that we've had with distribution, uh, I mean, if it was only one thing, it would be a lot easier, but it's usually a number of things. One major issue for us has been security. Just, it isn't that people want to steal all the food, but it's, it's the issue that there's always a few people, generally the younger, stronger, quicker, who get impatient, or maybe their name isn't on the list for some reason, and begin to cause some difficulties. And so the issue around security has been major. It's improved a lot because we've had uh, the um, American troops have been there, Canadian troops have been there, the UN troops have been there. And even though as humanitarian organizations, we really don't like doing distributions with the military because we think we don't want to mix humanitarian work with the military, in this particular environment, it's been required and it's helped us tremendously in our distribution work. So that's been one of the major problems. The second one has just been getting uh, the supplies distributed, first getting uh, transported into the country, whether by ship, whether over land, some by air, but that's not really practical over the long term, and then getting them distributed from the airport, from the, you know, from the dock, from the land bridge that's come in. That's been the other issue, and it's been the lack of trucks, lack of drivers, mm. petrol issues. But fortunately, those are getting better, uh, certainly in the last week. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com Dave Toyson is the president of World Vision Canada. I'm looking at a map, Dave, of Haiti. And the map, folks 
Just imagine a backward C, and in the middle of the curve of the C is Port-au-Prince, which is the capital of Haiti. What about the outlining regions? How do you get all the materials, etc., to the outlining regions? Are there airports there? Are they big enough to handle the big transport airplane? No, you're asking a good question. No, it, it, in our experience, you really have to get it, uh, I mean, significant, you know, material that, that is of significant weight has to go out by, uh, by land, by truck. Oh, man. And there's, there's no question there's, in some of the further out settlements from Port-au-Prince, there's, there's major concerns there, places like Jack Mel, Liam Gare. Mm-hmm. I mean, these situations have been documented. We've, we've got a fairly strong Canadian presence in Jack Mel which is, uh, you know, good news for that community. The other issue, though, that, that we're having to deal with at World Vision, because a lot of our work prior to the earthquake has been more in the countryside, is that literally uh, thousands of people have left Port-au-Prince, and they have walked or been able to get travel back to their home villages. So we've been working in one area in the, what's called the Central Plateau, and our team told us they had 12,000 people that have shown up extra in this village area. And these are areas where there's already some food issues even prior to this migration. So that's another issue that we're going to have to deal with. We've got staff right now uh, assessing and seeing what kind of extra resources we're going to have to bring into those communities. Canadians are very generous folks in general. What can Canadians do right away to help out? Well, you know, already Canadians have given very generously. I think Canada continues to be the most generous country per capita towards the, the Haitian earthquake and, and the, and the uh, destruction that's followed. So I mean, that's a great commentary on the care and concern in Canada. So we're, first of all, I just want to say thank you to, because I'm sure pe- many people listening to this broadcast have been contributors already. And what we're simply asking them to do is, if you can, continue contributing because this, this work is going to go on for years. And we're going to need support not only just in the emergency phase, but in the recovery and the development phase as well. So, I mean, that would be my word to people. Um, at World Vision Canada, we have a website, worldvision.ca. makes it really easy for people to give. And then I say to people, if you're giving to another organization, or if you haven't, but you, you don't want to give to World Vision, well, then find another organization and give to them. Because there's good work being done, and we're going to need everybody's help people on the ground, do you need volunteers to go and help distribute? Well, I'm, I'm a bit cautious about saying how many volunteers, and it, it may s- seem a bit counterintuitive, but, but the reasoning really is, is that for anyone who goes, we have to find a space for them, and we have to be able to provide and look after them while they're there. And when you're in a country at the moment, particularly in the Port-au-Prince area, where you've got literally hundreds of thousands of people who've been displaced, Finding a place to stay, finding a place even to put your tent up, isn't always an easy thing. And, and of course, there's security issues as well. So I'm a, I'm a bit cautious. I would encourage people who want to volunteer, you know, go to a reputable organization, talk with them, and make sure you've done some planning before you simply show up. Uh, because we had some experience with that in, uh, in our, you know, with our team in Haiti, and, and we found it a real challenge, because you can't just say to people, well, goodbye, <laughs> go back home. You have to figure out some way to accommodate them, and it becomes a real burden for organizations that are so tied up already 
with commitments and, and agendas that we have to meet. Folks, if you're just joining us, we're talking about Haiti. Obviously, we're speaking with Dave Toyson. Dave Toyson is the president of World Vision. And as always, I will put that link up on the website, www.brenthollandshow.com. And I'm going to put a little banner up there also, make it easy for you to donate. And I'll just link right up to Dave's website. Dave, you've been in the country. Can you tell us a little bit of your experiences, your impressions of Haiti? Sure, sure. Thank you, thank you. I, I guess, well, I guess one, of the, one of the comments that stayed with me, uh, it involved our own staff. One of the things that's made this, this earthquake so devastating is it's the capital city. It's where the mass of the population is. And also, for many of us, this is where our national headquarters are. So, for example, the World Vision Haiti office is uh, located in, in the, the greater Port-au-Prince area. So it means our own staff, we have over a 100 of them there, uh, they've been impacted themselves. They've lost family members. Only two of our staff have a house or an apartment still standing to live in. So our own staff, when they go home at night after working with us all day, uh, they're going home to sleep on the ground with their children, with their spouse. So I think people need to understand that reality. I was talking to one of our senior staff members, and, and he said to me, he said, you know, all my life, or most of my life, I've been a helper helping victims. But he said, now I've become a victim, and it changes everything. And it's that reality that most Haitians, certainly in the earthquake area, are dealing with, as well as just the trauma it's created across the whole country. So that's, that's a major reality that I felt immediately when I arrived. The, the other scene that, just to give you a, a picture, I think, of, the, of what the early days were like when I first arrived. Please. I, I went, to the, went to the largest hospital in Port-au-Prince, and the hospital has been compromised by the earthquake, so all the patients were outside in sort of a garden area and along the street. People on old, rusty hospital beds. I saw people laying on doors people on uh, just uh, blankets thrown on the ground. Uh, there was no doctor to be seen, no nursing staff. And as I, our, we had taken some uh, volunteers in with the local Haitian high school teachers who wanted to help, we'd given them some basic health care training. And so they were simply there distributing gauze, bandages, some pharmaceuticals, and dressing the wounds of those who'd been injured. And it was while I was I just had a moment to stop and take in the scene. And this, this is what it looked like. I was looking first at a man being treated by our volunteers. Then off to the left, a man walked up with a, with a 12 or 13-year-old child who was hideously malnourished, had obviously been very sick before the earthquake. He was looking for help. My eye turned a little further. There was a casket being carried up the street with a stream of mourners behind them. Then I looked the other direction. There were two men walking up the street, but young men, and one young man suddenly began weeping and put his, his head on the shoulder of the other man. Then I looked further off to the side, and there was the body of a young woman who had died and had, it, it appeared to me, had been lying on the ground for hours. No one had had the wherewithal. There was no place to take her body. And then the last thing I saw, I was walking out, and I... I looked to the side of a couple that were standing by one of these doors, just the wife was laying on the door, and the man had put up, he was obviously an artist, a beautiful painting of Haiti with sunlight across it. It was gorgeous. And all these images, it was, it was a hospital supposed to be a place of life, 
But for many of these people, there was a place of death. And that's what we were dealing with right from the beginning in Haiti, was the, the attitude that there was hope, but at the same time, this incredible destruction of death and injury across the countryside. Dave Toyson, folks, he's the president of World Vision Canada, www.brenthollandshow.com. Click on the link. There's a banner there right at the top. You can click there. That'll link right to the World Vision website where you can make a donation and help out in any which way you can. I want to talk about obstacles now to the recovery process. Are there political obstacles and what pisses you off? <laughs> oh, I think I think what really ticks me off is just how long it takes sometimes to get to get these things to people. And you just you just scream in your mind that why why can't it be easier? Hmm. Everybody's intentions generally are good, but there's literally thousands of non-government organizations. There's a government that doesn't function. Uh, the UN has they, their headquarters. Uh, they they lost tens of staff in the earthquake itself. So so everybody. I mean, as I said earlier, our own staff were traumatized because almost all of our staff are Haitian. So all of that combined to just make this an incredibly complicated and difficult, chaotic response. So you know that's what drives you nuts. I mean, the obstacles, I, I, would, I guess I'd want to be a bit more positive in the sense that I think what's really important right now is that there be a, a joint assessment, which fortunately has been agreed upon, so that there's a joint assessment that all the major players, the governments that are donors, the, the, uh, the Haitian government, the UN, the European Union, the Inter-American Bank, all these different players in something like this agree to a common assessment. And then what will come out of that common assessment is a, is a master plan so that we all fit in under that master plan rather than each organization or each country doing their own thing. It, this may seem like common sense, but uh, it's amazing sometimes how this doesn't happen. So that's critical. We also think it's really critical that there be one person in the Haitian government that's charged with coordinating this. So oftentimes governments divide it up between different ministries and then it becomes political, it becomes competition. And then we've been, we've been really asking that there be common principles, a, a sort of framework of principles that are in agreement for the, the big multi-donor fund that will literally be billions of dollars so that, that we can be assured that the money goes to help the local people, that, that the government is held to transparency, and I know some people wonder, how can the Haitian government even be part of this? Well, no country can be without a government. There has to be some kind of government in place. So we have to figure out what the, how we can be helpful to that, but at the same time it has to be transparent and that people will know how the money is being spent. Not just the governments, not just our donors in Canada, but the local people will know how that money is being spent and that their government's accountable. That sounds great. You're listening to The Brent Holland Show. For more information on today's guests, as well as free podcasts and downloads, please go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. www.brenthollandshow.com Now, is there a focal point on the island that people automatically gravitate to for leadership? Oh, boy, that's a tough question. I I mean, there, there's such there's such mixed feelings about the current government mm. uh, in terms of, of just people's confidence in it. I mean, we just have to be honest about that. But on the other hand, 
regardless of what people's view, I think, is of, of necessarily the integrity of the elections, this is a government that was elected. Uh, and so, at least for the present time, they are the only government that we have. And the government has asked to stall any further elections uh, in light of this disaster, which I think in many ways is understandable because there's, there's literally no apparatus left uh, to be able to carry on an election really of any kind, at least for the, you know, the foreseeable future. So my view is there's still, I believe, some people of good intentions in that government. We need to find them. We need to figure out how they can be supported. And then, as, as, I, you know, as I've said previously, just held accountable. I think it's really wrong to ignore the government in Haiti and, of course, terribly wrong if we're not listening and hearing the, the uh, appeals and the understanding that the local Haitians have themselves. Dave Toyson, president of World Vision Canada. Of course, the link's on brenthollandshow.com. Dave, was there any surprises for you? Any surprises in people's natural humanity? I don't know if this was a surprise so much, but I've just been so impressed with the determination of Haitians to not be overwhelmed by this and to refuse to give up. I, I think that's what's so humbling when you're involved in this kind of work is with so little, people just never give up. They're, they're trying to rebuild. The vendors are back out in the street. People are trying to do some business. They're, they're trying to get on with their lives. I, that's so impressive. I, I remember talking to a man in one of the distribution areas where we, we were doing distribution. He had been the librarian and, and in charge of the curriculum in one of the schools there. And I was talking to him, and he, and he said to me, he said, I want to get back to work. He said, I've been a farmer. I've been a businessman. He said, I, he said, I can do almost anything. But he said, I just need a little bit of help to get started. And this was a man who had nothing. Their house was gone. He was sitting with his wife and two children. And for me, he was a voice. He was a voice of hope, saying he's actually not wanting everything to just be given to him. He's simply saying, I need some help right now, but I'm ready to go back to be, you know, whether it's a teacher, you know, to be a businessman, to be a farmer, to be a laborer. He didn't care. He just wanted a chance to put his life back together again. And that's the thing that uh, always gives me hope in these situations. Myself also, whenever I see that spark, that wonderful spark uh, in people's eyes, and uh, it's so inspiring, and that's what it's all about. Dave, we're virtually syndicated from coast to coast to coast. Right now, you're speaking with every university student across the country every college-age student as well, and communities as well, small community networks. What would you say to them? Well, I, I think the first thing I would say to people is that, is that uh, thank you for the response and the support that's been given uh, just fantastically already. I mean, we're, I think we're well over $100 million now that people have given privately in this country, and so it's fantastic. And, and obviously, young people, university students have been a, very much a part of this. So I think the first thing is to say thank you. The, the second thing is that I would say is that in situations like this, when something terrible has happened, you know, thousands and thousands of people have lost their lives, maybe if there's anything positive in it at all, it, it is for a moment that we've all paused and we, we've been forced in a way, really, to think about what's most important in life. And we've gathered together around this terrible situation, this tragedy in Haiti, and we've all, in one way or another, whether it's you know money, whether it's volunteering, whether it's encouraging, whether it's praying, 
what, whatever we can do to contribute, people have done that, not only in Canada but around the world. And, and I think it's a reminder to all of us that this idea that somehow we can experience joy in life and fulfillment while other people are dying, are in the midst of great suffering. Uh, I, I think we're just reminded again of that truth that you can't do that. You can't find true happiness in life if you're not prepared to be generous and caring to help the other person who's in a difficult place, who's suffered disaster, whatever the situation. So I celebrate that, and I, I'm deeply appreciative as you know one of the organizations who really depends upon that spirit to be able to do the kind of work that we do. So I'm, I'm just grateful and humbled to be able to speak these words, share these stories, and share this experience uh, with, with so many people. I want to thank you and your whole team, and especially those folks on the ground right now, right in Port-au-Prince and the whole island of Haiti, because, you know, we donate our money, which, no question, it's essential, but your team and you yourself, Dave, are right there involved in this on a day-to-day -day basis, and that is essential, and I want to thank you for doing that. I think well, it's thank you very much. Thank you very much, Brandon. I, I just want to say I appreciate your, your wonderful compliment, but it's a chain of events that's the cause of this, and it takes a chain of people connected together, in, in all doing our part to bring about renewal, to bring about hope, and to bring about, we hope, a new Haiti. Dave Toyson, the president of World Vision Canada, of course, www.brenthollandshow.com. The banner will be there and the links will be there, of course, without hesitation. No problem whatsoever. You can link right up and make a donation right online. I want to thank you so much for taking the time out. I know your schedule must be incredibly busy. And I want to thank you for coming on the show this afternoon and sharing your stories with us and your spirit of hope. And that's the essential part. Great. All the very best Thank to you, you my friend. Okay, God bless my Really people. appreciate it. You take care. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Also coming up on the Brent Holland Show, Ian Gill will join us. All that we say is ours. The reawakening of the Haida Nation. As you know, the Haida Nation is part of Canada's Aboriginal folks, and we're going to be talking about how they're empowering themselves. As you know, Marie Wadden was here several weeks ago, and we talked about Aboriginals self-empowering themselves, and that's something that we can all help and look forward to. It was a full frontal assault on Aboriginal people across Canada. The potlatch was banned. The potlatch is the gathering um, that tribes do to celebrate um, important events, and it's actually the legal form for uh, transmitting laws and stories and wealth. You know, Aboriginal people weren't allowed to vote. They weren't even allowed to organize to meet with it. They weren't allowed to meet with a lawyer to even talk about treaties or Aboriginal rights. They weren't allowed to organize in any way. So there was a form of institutionalized apartheid in Canada uh, for decades. So they were up against enormous odds. I mean, the collusion between successive Canadian and provincial governments and industry in the extermination of Aboriginal rights was unbelievable, and it happened all over the country, and it happened in particular to some of the coastal communities in British Columbia. And the historical record is full of references to how governments colluded near frontiersmen, whether they were looking for gold or timber or whatever it was, to basically deny Aboriginal rights. And to some extent, that still goes on. And by the way, all these shows are archived and are free for you to download at the www.brenthollandshow.com website. 
www.brenthollandshow.com website. They're free for you to download. Throw them on your iPod if you're going on the metro somewhere. Great thing to listen to. Driving in the car, terrific. All there. Archive for you to listen to. Also coming up, David Suzuki will be joining us and we'll be talking about what we can do as individuals to reduce our carbon footprint. A harrowing story, Katie Calloway Hall. Katie Calloway Hall was kidnapped and raped in 1976 by Philip Garrido. Now, if that name sounds familiar, Philip Garrido, it should. Last summer, he was caught having fathered two children with a small girl that he had kidnapped and molested. Fast forward 15 years, and they were found last summer, accidentally. Also coming up, Wade Davis will be here, and as you all know, he's from the National Geographic Society and a proud Canadian. We're going to be discussing his book, Wayfinders, Why Ancient Wisdom Matters in the Modern World. Drew Hayden Taylor will be here, and that's a fun show. Me Sexy, we talk about native sexuality, and we have a blast. The Simpsons. Yep, we're going to be discussing The Simpsons in an upcoming show and their lasting legacy. All that coming up on The Brent Holland Show. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.